persuaded that Numbers chapter 14 is a good sort of microcosm of the entire book of Numbers. So I'd like to propose today that we look at the, uh, the book of Numbers in its entirety, really in a summary fashion, of course, and then look um, at uh, its theme really displayed uh, very well in chapter 14 that was read in your hearing today. And so really, the, the main theme in the book of Numbers is the contrast between unbelief and belief. Persistent unbelief and belief. How those two things are contrasted, they're shown, set side by side. Uh, what does unbelief look like? And what does belief look like? So, displayed and uh, read in your hearing is, as I uh, mentioned, Numbers 14. And what you see in Numbers 14 is that this God, this holy God, the one God, the Creator God, led the children of Israel by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. So he he led them. And what does so? What does belief look like? Belief looks like every step of the way that I'm following the Lord. He says, we, we must go this way. And we say, okay, we're going to go this way. And this is belief in God, right? And then he continues to lead. And in the book of Numbers, so the book of Numbers uh, chronologically occurs about 13 months after the book of Leviticus, and it covers 39 years, the 39 years in the wilderness. So it is an historical narrative, of course, in Numbers, Deuteronomy basically being a sermon and a commentary on all of that period of time. And so what we see is what does belief look like? Following the Lord, we see their encampments. Uh, encampment by encampment is listed in the book of Numbers, Right? And then what happens is unbelief, right? Unbelief in large measure. No longer will I listen and follow this one who leads me by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. I will go this way now. That's unbelief. And if they persist in unbelief, the revelation, of course, is that they are in fact not followers of God. They're not children of God. Right? They persist in unbelief. And what we see in the book of Numbers is persistent unbelief set alongside belief. What does belief look like? What does believing God look like for everything? And what does not believing God look like for everything? And I would propose to you that in our own generation, in our own culture, we have, of course, had set before us opportunities for us to express belief or unbelief. Now, you have heard Numbers 14, and you may have expected to hear something like this in the New Testament, perhaps. The Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression. Perhaps you've been told as a child, or you've grown up, thinking that the God displayed in the Old Testament would never say something like that. He would never say uh, what He said in uh, the book of Leviticus, chapter 19, love your neighbor as yourself. You might not have expected for God to say that. And we recognize, of course, that one matter of unbelief, one matter of unbelief isn't persistent unbelief. But if I continue to disobey God, time after time after time, I'm only revealing... I'm only revealing that, in fact, I am not a follower of God. How could I ever be described as being a follower of God if I persistently act in unbelief? I'm not doing that, God. Oh, and I'm not doing that either, God. And I'm not doing that either, God. And so that's displayed 
in the book of Numbers for us, as well as belief. We see here uh, belief as well, displayed right here in Numbers chapter 14, and we will see that as well. But nonetheless, in our generation, in our culture, we've had opportunities to say, I believe. Something as simple as this idea that God has called people to worship in person on the Lord's Day. I believe that God has called us to do that. And when we step away from that, we are expressing unbelief. This is the idea. Something as simple as a gathering on the Lord's Day has been called into question by sophisticated theologians. But we have said, I believe. I believe. And so we obey and listen to the Lord. And we also delight ourselves in the favor of this one who loves us and sent his own son to die for us. Persistent unbelief contrasted with belief. We see here uh, complaining, which is categorically complaining against God, of course. We see the need for faith and the ability of God to fulfill his promises. We must believe. If we want to go where God would have us go, it will require faith. It will require... There's no... We cannot follow God and go with God without faith. He has, he has designed it in that way. He's designed it that there is a certain aspect of the unknown in which we must trust a Heavenly Father whose hand we may not fully understand. It will require faith. It will require faith in God. And we see that here in the book of Numbers. To joyfully obey God will always require faith to keep His promises. That God will keep His promises. So, to look, look out, sort of a bird's eye view of Numbers. Numbers 1-10 through 10 records a rapid, really a, a preparation for a rapid advance into Canaan. So what we see here is preparation, not only for the people of God to be, to be holy, to worship God, uh, but we see that they are preparing themselves to enter rapidly into Canaan. After the ten chapters of harmony between the people of God, the next uh, ten chapters or so record rebellion and the attendant wrath of God with much destruction. The Israelites are revealed to be a very fickle people in their affections to God and to His ways. And they refuse to accept the difficult conditions that are set before them as they anticipate conquering the land. And those that refuse, of course, are sentenced to die in the desert. That request, by the way, to die in the desert is here in Numbers 14. They say in verse 3, Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? They say in verse 2, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness? And God says in verse 28, As I live, declares the Lord, what you have said in my hearing, I will do to you. You want to die in the wilderness? Granted, you will die in the wilderness. And so, let us be a people who display not unbelief, but belief. Will we believe this God who talked to His people in the book of Numbers? The last third of the book records what happens after the old generation had died out. It's the account of Balaam being called upon by Balak 
of Moab associated with the Midianites. Uh, So Balak recognized that he and his people could not best the nation of Israel at, at full war. They couldn't. So he called upon Balaam, a pagan, a pagan uh, prophet to curse Israel. And so the Lord spoke through Balaam and Balaam was revealed to be a guy that had the spiritual perception just beneath a donkey. His donkey was more spiritually perceptive than he was. And this might be not a bad time to bring up this idea of vision or the way that God speaks through individuals because we may be inclined to view this idea that when God speaks in a vision or through an individual, that that is in fact an expression of spiritual depth and closeness to God. It isn't. When God uses visions, it's because there is such limited spiritual perception that He must display this kind of thing. And so, of course, that's true in in Balaam. Now, I'm not proposing to you that in the Scriptures, everyone that received a vision was spiritually imperceptive. However, when we consider who it was that received those visions, we should recognize that they were not at their spiritual pinnacle when they received them. You might consider Jacob. Or how about the Apostle Paul, for instance? And so, again, this was really the beginning of their understanding of God's revelation, not the pinnacle of it. And we see that in this idea with Balaam. I will draw your attention to a few connections here with the New Testament, both in Matthew 4, 1 through 11, and Luke 4, 1 through 13. There's a parallel implied in the life of the Lord Jesus as he is in the wilderness for 40 days. One day for every year, Israel was in the wilderness. We see here the temptations were practically identical, relating to food, protection, and idolatry. Jesus did not give in to temptations and replied to the devil with quotations from where? from the book of Deuteronomy, that were drawn from the narratives, of course, in this book that we're looking at today, the book of Numbers. Jesus was the new Israel who succeeded where the old Israel failed. Jesus succeeded where the old Israel failed. That's why we must have Christ as our substitute, right? The Lord Jesus had positive righteousness to apply to us. Our our ability to go to heaven is not solely based on the fact that we're forgiven. It's not solely based on that. You see, we have we when we go to heaven, we will certainly be able to say, "Oh God, thank you for forgiving me for all of this sin that I've done." But there's another problem. And the problem is positive righteousness. Have I in fact obeyed God? in everything that He has called me to do? And the answer, of course, to that is no. If I have not sinned a day in my life, yet I have not obeyed God positively in all the things that God has called me to do, then I must also have a substitute. And that is what the Lord Jesus Christ did for us. His active obedience, as Bible students refer to, His his faithful, perfectly holy life, lived one for one, given to me, but also the fact that He purchased for me. He paid the penalty on the, on the cross. The Lord Jesus Christ paid the penalty for us. We needed that, of course, as well. The concept that salvation is by faith alone and the promises of God is shown prominently in Numbers. And, of course, it's consistent with the message of the New Testament. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12, a reference to Numbers. Believers are warned against a sinful and unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. 
It's unbelief. You want to know what pulls you away from God? It's unbelief. Unbelief. One day you wake up and you say, I'm not doing that. I don't believe it. And then what happens next? Well, you're, you're already spiritually uh, growing in blindness. It's as if there's spiritual cataracts going on. You see, you gradually lose your ability to see, and then all of a sudden you're blind spiritually. And that's what happened, of course, to those in numbers. And it's what happens to those who aren't redeemed in Christ that turn away. God's promises of faithfulness require the means of faithfulness. Require the means of faithfulness. There are some that are persuaded that when I mature in Christ, I no longer need the means of faithfulness. I've matured my way out of needing to read the Bible every day in a meaningful way. Or I've matured uh, myself out of the need to have accountability from those people that would hold me accountable to the things of God, to living in a faithful life. Or, or that I've matured uh, away from needing to be part of a faithful church, of, of worshiping the Lord weekly and so forth. The promises of faithfulness always require the means of faithfulness. And so in a nutshell, the book of Numbers here, chapter 11, complaints about misfortunes, about not having meat to eat. Chapter 12, Aaron and Miriam speak against Moses because of his wife being a Cushite and declare that the Lord can speak through them as well as Moses. After the spies return in chapter 14, the people complain and wish they had died in Egypt. In chapter 16, we have Korah's rebellion. 250 chiefs chosen from the assembly gather against Moses. After the 250 chiefs are consumed by fire and their households consumed as the earth opened up and then closed the next day, the congregation also endures a plague where 14,700 die. Chapter 20, complained against Moses because they have no water at Meribah. This is the place where Moses strikes the rock instead of speaking to it. Chapter 21, complaint against the Lord and Moses. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? This is the place where the Lord sends fiery serpents upon them and he raises up on the staff the serpent for them to look at. And then in 25, chapter 25, Moab and Midian were afraid to attack Israel, failed to thwart them with a curse from Balaam. And thus upon Balaam's advice... Shown in 31.16, they draw them into idolatry and immorality. Proverbs 1.11 says, What those that would entice those who would be God's people into sin, come with us. This is another interesting thing about really what we see in this continued progress of redemption. The culture, that is, the culture in which God redeems us is a culture that seems to be filled with people that would entice followers of God to move away from God. Does it surprise you? Does it surprise you that there are people around you that are very interested in drawing your attention away from the God that speaks to us through His Word, 
away from the God that is ready to hear our prayers, away from the God that led the children of Israel in the book of Numbers by a pillar of fire and a pillar of cloud and spoke to Moses face to face as one man speaks to another. Does it, does it surprise you that there are people, there are things, there are situations in which would be used to draw you away from God? Very strategically minded people. People that, that have, a, have an ends and a means by which they would reach that end. Balak recognized that he could not enter into war with Israel, so what did he do? He tried to get Balaam to curse them four times. Balaam didn't curse Israel, though he wanted to. Balaam was very interested in his own honor. Very interested in his own honor. And he couldn't accomplish cursing Israel, but he could do this. He could entice Moab and the Midianites to entice the Israelites to sin against God, and then what would happen? God would judge His people. God's a God of love as well as a God of justice. God will not sit and allow that to occur. So He incited them to sin. And so the result we see here. Now let's turn the focus a little bit and look directly at Numbers chapter 14. Directly at Numbers chapter 14. In these first four verses... The point is persistent unbelief. What does persistent unbelief look like? Well, I would draw your attention to the the widespread nature of it. Verses 1 to 2, we have three situations here where all the congregation, all the people of Israel, the whole congregation is described. Now, we know there were a few that were, in fact, following the Lord. But look at the summary. Consider the numbers of people that are turning away. All the congregation, all the people, the whole congregation is how it's described. Persistent unbelief. They begin to complain. They say, would that we had died in the land of Egypt. Persistent unbelief often is marked by rash vows. I wish I was dead. I wish I died somewhere else. I wish I was somewhere else. I don't want to go where you're going. Why is the Lord, in verse 3, bringing us into this land? You have those questions? How do you ask those questions? Now, God had already answered that question. But this is, this is one of the aspects of sinful humanity. And that is this. When we're following the place where God would have us to go, we're following Him, we're following Him, we're following Him. We come to a point where we don't understand and what do we do? We stop. We stop following God. And we say, I don't understand why you're bringing... Why are we going here? And you stop. Right? And you decide to camp out there for a while. Although the decision to follow God and go in this direction was a decision founded upon the Word of God, and yet you stop. And what happens then? Well, you've, you've, just, you've just negatively impacted your ability to even hear what it is that God is saying. 
In naval terms, in a ship, there's a thing called steerageway. The interesting thing about a ship is that you can't turn it if it's not moving. (laughs) You can't turn a ship if it's not moving. And so God would have us to be a people who are in motion following Him. If you want to ask a question, friends, God can endure the most scrutable, the most difficult and challenging questions that you have. But we've got to keep following Him while we ask the question. Now, the exact same thing is true in a very small sense, uh, likely in the children in this room. When my children were little, if they had a question about what it is that we had directed them to do, we directed them to feel free to ask and describe and discuss however it is that they want. But all of that would be done in the process of doing what it is that we told them. Yes, sir, Dad, I'm going to do this right away. But by the way, what is it? What is it? Why are we doing this? Right? You understand? You got questions? That's fine. But those questions will be asked in the process of obeying God. Right? And that's where, that's where these expressions of unbelief come out. Verse 4. What do they say? It's not enough to question the Lord. What are they doing now? <laughs> Let us choose a leader who will take us back to Egypt. Here's the God that led them by a pillar of fire in the evening and a pillar of cloud by day. A God that spoke to Moses face to face. And they say, let us choose a leader. So they have God before them who was willing to lead them day by day, moment by moment, provide them with all that they needed. Anybody here ever been to Israel? You want to try to sustain one and a half million people on rocks? Now they got some beautiful farmland in Israel. But Israel, the wilderness of Israel, don't get the wrong impression here. It's not lush and green. Okay? God sustained them in that wilderness for 40 years. And they've decided to choose another leader? The expressions of unbelief. When our understanding of the gospel is man-centered, we're drawn to man-centered responses and dissatisfaction with God. We express unbelief when we question and complain against God. Have you ever told God, I don't like where you're going? I can choose better. It's my life. This man-centered gospel that's popular today, responses... Justify complaints because God isn't serving us. This generation of Israelites chosen by God to be a holy display of His love and glory, promised a new home with bounteous resources, secured by the presence of Almighty God, establishing a godly heritage for a thousand generations, decided that they knew best. I don't like what you're feeding me, God. And so therefore, I wish that I had died in Egypt. I don't like where we're going, God. I don't like preparing for war. It's a messy business. And I don't want to do that. Proverbs 10.17 says, He who rejects reproof leads others astray. Be sure of this, personal sin is not a solitary event. 
When pride comes, Proverbs 11.2, then comes disgrace. Pride is the native principle of fallen man. The native principle. I want you to look at verse 4 here again. Let us choose a leader. The Bible says that before a man dies, he's haughty. Right? Let us choose a leader. Do we not do that? We look at this passage and we may say, Oh God, where's the lightning bolt? But we, we've, we've done the same thing. By the grace of God, not persistently, I trust, else we would be in a very different place. Persistent unbelief. Persistent unbelief. An example of this is in Samson. With Samson in the book of Judges. Remember when he was with Delilah. The first child, seven fresh bowstrings. He woke up and busted out from them, right? The next one, new ropes, never used. Thirdly, was told uh, that if his hair was woven into a web, his strength would fail. But Samson knew all along, right? Samson knew all along that he could bust right out of that. And then what did he say? He said, my hair's never been cut. And his hair was cut. And Samson thought that just the same way as I always have, just the same way I lifted up those gates and moved them out, the same way that I busted through those bowstrings and ropes, I'm going to bust through now. And Samson didn't realize what the children of Israel didn't realize in the book of Numbers. He didn't realize this. God wasn't with him anymore. God wasn't with him anymore. Persistent unbelief. And we see that right here in the book of Numbers. We see it again, of course, in the life of Samson. Now, we see something else here. And I draw your attention to verse to verse 5. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces. Verse 6, Joshua and the son of, the son of Nun and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes. Now these were very common, uh, very common displays of, 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 of absolute, uh, uh, really such difficulty and distress over what's happening. Moses and Aaron fell on their face before God in front of the congregation. They, they really, there's nothing else they could think of doing but falling on their face before God and praying to God. And here's Joshua and Caleb and they tear their clothes. And the idea here is they, they tear open their clothes to reveal really their heart, to show that, their, their, that, that all of this horror, all of this mourning is, is revealed, is open in front of the people. Absolutely horrified at what it is that they're doing. And what do they say? Verse 7, The land which we pass through to spy out is an exceedingly good land. It's an exceedingly good land. The place where we're going and the God that we're following is where you want to be. In other words, there is reason to be persuaded about the goodness of following God and going where He wants, but of course also it is God who has called us to this. He, he doesn't offer to us options, but He selects good for us and says, Come, let us go. Verse 8, If the Lord delights in us, He'll bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Verse 9, 
They have two recommendations. Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people. Key areas that draw us away from following God, rebelling against God. Again, persistent unbelief. I'm not following you here. I'm not doing this. I'll do everything else but not this. And fearing the people. Fearing the people. Have you ever decided not to do what is revealed in God's Word because you were fearful of what people would think? Joshua and Caleb nail it. Categorically, these two things, rebelling against God and fearing the people or fearing the nations, or fearing those that are working against God, fearing those that are not following God. These are the things that are part of persistent unbelief. And those committed to living out God's Word, of course, are those that follow Him. Those who don't express the fear of those who are unbelievers. There seems to be no end to the level of sophisticated argumentation that people use to justify themselves in doing what they want. How many books have been written to justify not following God the way that His Word seems to clearly indicate that He should be followed? The man-centered gospel draws us away from truly following God, though it's often called something else. It may be called being loving. Or it may be called not being legalistic, or it may be called relevant, or it may be called mainstream Christianity, but nonetheless, in our culture, these are ways that are inclined to persistent unbelief, not belief. Now, you may say, well, I mean... I live my life for Christ, they live their life not for Christ, and we'll just decide to go our separate ways. Is that how it worked out in the congregation of Israel? It has already been noted that we live, that our generation, the generation that all of us are living in, we're, we're living in this generation right now, the generation that we live in right now, uh, the gospel, and to be a God follower, actually Owen Strayan brought this up in his last podcast, Antithesis, uh, is, is a negative... Response. It's no longer neutral. It's not positive. In other words, historically, uh, there was a time when if you were a Christ follower, that somehow was commendable publicly. Right? That that, that, that would gain for you a certain heightened stature in the public view if you were a follower of Christ. And then we can see in the sweep of history, not that long ago, uh, it was such that it was neutral. It really didn't, it didn't matter one way or the other uh, whether you were a follower of Christ. And now what we see is, in fact, we're in a very negative environment where, where for you to follow Christ conspicuously such that the people around you see that you're a follower, which is, in fact, the only way in which Christ can live in you and you can be attached to Christ is that other people would see it nonetheless. They'd seem to want to respond the same way as these who were in unbelief did to Joshua and Caleb. What do they want to do? Well, verse 10 says, All the congregation said to stone them with stones. 
stone them with stones. I mean, can we just talk about this for a minute? I mean, how about, how about you list all of the positive aspects and, and we'll list where we are and we'll see where we meet in the middle or something like that. Oh, no, no, no. No, I will kill you because you follow Christ. That's the idea. That's what the congregation decided to do. That's the congregation that as God says in this chapter, I will give you what you wish. You will die in this wilderness. People that encourage consequential, costly obedience to those not committed to following God may receive lethal treatment at the hands of those who are so-called God's people. All the nations looked at the people of Israel and they said, yeah, those are God's people. Obviously, they didn't know even enough to distinguish from the outside who in fact were God's people and who weren't. Because what we have, again, displayed in numbers is persistent unbelief set beside belief. And not only justifying belief, but a sanctifying, life-living belief Yes, God, you've told me this. You've given me enough light for one step, and I'll take it. I'm here now. Where to next? David says in the 23rd Psalm that I have light for my path. One step at a time. You see, we don't like that. We like retirement plans. Right? We don't like the one step at a time. I'm here. I'm going to endure whatever it is that's here in this environment that God has called me to until He tells me to take the next step. That's the idea. This is what Joshua and Caleb did. They hung out in the wilderness for 40 years too. We see some glorious displays of the way that God preserved Joshua and Caleb. Caleb said that I have the same strength today that I did 40 years ago. Give me this land. And we'll see what the Lord will do. And God kept His promises to those who are faithful. Now what is God's response? Verse 21, God says, Truly as I live and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, none of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and have yet put me to the test ten times have not obeyed my voice. They shall not see the land. Verse 23. Verse 33. And your children shall be shepherds in the wilderness forty years and shall suffer for your faithlessness until the last of your dead bodies lies in the wilderness. Verse 31, he says, Your little ones who you said would become a prey. That is, God is telling them, Your little ones who you said would become victims in the wilderness. I will bring them and show them the land that you have rejected. No, no, no. They, they're not going to be victims. They're going to be victorious. 
Is there a difference between the two? Yes, the difference is between persistent unbelief and belief. Persistent unbelief and belief. Very simply, the message in Numbers. Now, I'd like to ask your indulgence for me to read an extended quote from J.I. Packer's introduction to John Owen's reprint of the book, The Death of Death and the Death of Christ. Now, I've asked Addie to put a, a link for this on the website. She's going to do that so, she can, so you can read this entire introduction. So, J.I. Packer wrote this introduction 64 years ago. So, this is a reprint to John Owen's work, The Death of Death in the Death of Christ. And John, or rather, J.I. Packer wrote a very extended introduction to this book, and I'd like to, to read uh, one paragraph out of this introduction. And you're going to say, wow, seems like he wrote, he wrote this just today. There's no doubt that evangelicalism today is in a state of perplexity and unsettlement. In such matters as the practice of evangelism, the teaching of holiness, the building up of local church life, the pastors dealing with souls, and the exercise of discipline, there's evidence of widespread dissatisfaction with things that, as they are and of equally widespread uncertainty as to the road ahead. This is a complex phenomenon to which many factors have contributed, but if we go to the root of the matter, we shall find that these perplexities are all ultimately due to our having lost our grip on the biblical gospel. Without realizing it, we have, during the past century, bartered that gospel for a substitute product, which, though it looks similar enough in points of detail, is, as a whole, a decidedly different thing. Hence our troubles. For the substitute product does not answer the ends for which the authentic gospel has in past days proved itself so mighty. Children hasn't answered the ends. What he's saying is just like the first question in the Westminster Shorter Catechism, what is the chief end of man? That is, what is the purpose of man? What is the purpose of the gospel? And see, what Packer is saying is that the substitute gospel the, the substitute gospel cannot meet the purpose for which the gospel was given to us in the first place. He says the new gospel conspicuously fails to produce deep reverence, deep repentance, deep humility, a spirit of worship, a concern for the church. Why? We would suggest that the reason lies in its own character and content. It fails to make men God-centered in their thoughts and God-fearing in their hearts because this is not primarily what it is trying to do. One way of stating the difference between it and the old gospel is to say that it is too exclusively concerned to be helpful to man, to bring peace, comfort, happiness, satisfaction, and too little concern to glorify God. The old gospel was helpful too, more so indeed, says Packer, than is the new, but, so to speak, incidentally, for its first concern was always to give glory to God. It was always and essentially a proclamation of divine sovereignty and mercy and judgment. A summons to bow down and worship the mighty Lord on whom man depends for all good, both in nature and in grace. Its center of reference was unambiguously God. But in the new gospel, the center of reference is man. 
This is just to say that the old gospel was religious in a way that the new gospel is not. Whereas the chief aim of the old was to teach men to worship God, the concern of the new seems limited to making them feel better. The subject of the old gospel was God and His ways with men. The subject of the new is man and the help God gives him. There's a world of difference. The whole perspective and emphasis of gospel preaching has changed. Packer could have written this introduction to the book of Numbers, right? Because again, what we have here is the Israelites demanded from God a man-centered gospel. And God said, no, no. I'm going to give you all that you want and need and much more, but it will be done by me. I'm a sovereign God. I've not asked you what it is that you want to eat or where it is that you want to go. There was no joint sessions regarding the children of Israel and their exodus from Egypt. God told them what to do and they were to follow. And He had their best interests at heart, but they rejected them in large measure. And so that whole generation died out. I couldn't necessarily recommend it, but nonetheless, if you were to take notice of contemporary Christian music, you would notice that that music is no longer about God. It's about me and the way I feel about God and about what God does. You see, it's narcissistic and man-centered. You take a list at the books that are selling these days. Those books will typically be books that are man-centered. And they are trying to persuade you. They're trying to persuade you that you are the reason that God gets up in the morning. Not enough vitriol or acid or vinegar to put that kind of foolishness out. But nonetheless, let us be a people who delight ourselves in the God who led the children of Israel by a pillar of cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night, who spoke to Moses face to face and has given to us a published written word that we might know is revealed will. Let us be a people who delight ourselves in Him. Let's pray.